0: Tonight, the battle lines are drawn for United States versus those Hillary emails, or us and them, as it's more usually known. Republican or Democrat, Brexiteer or Remainer, young or old, rich or poor, male or female, or perhaps none of the above, (laughs) prepare to defend your position. Because the liars have voted, and we have six challenging stories to upset the status quo. And quite possibly other ageing rich male rock bands we can vote, hope. One thing we are all is here, unless you're listening in via the podcast. In which case, and in which case only, you may safely ignore the next instruction kindly turn your phones off, or to silence. Otherwise, the whole audience may rise up against you. And the last time that happened, the phoenix was closed for a week for cleanup. We'll have three stories for you in the first half, then a UN-observed ceasefire of approximately 15 minutes, before we plunge back into battle with the infamous Liesley book quiz <coughs> and three more equally divisive tales. And so, our first story of the evening will be Wee Sheep by J.A. Hopper and be read by Charlotte Worley. J.A. Hopper finds dolls really creepy because she always wanted to ride a dinosaur. She's published several stories online and in print, and her story, Mother's Milk, was previously read at Lyre's Leagues. Charlotte trains at the Oxford School of Drama. Theatre includes These Trees Are Made of Blood, The Wind in the Willows, The Just So Stories, The Miniaturists, and The Occupied Times, Playlist, Festo, and Radio includes Drama Series, Chain Gang, and The Private Patient. She also records books for the RNIB. Charlotte!
1: We are all she. All 3,117 of us. Itemised, docketed, and accounted for in a mothballed warehouse just outside Milton Keynes. Our puffy caramel blonde hair, waved and styled in miniature, is just like hers. Is hers, from TV. Our kiss-shaped lips, pink as guava pulp, are hers too, wearing her sensual sneer of command. Her full name is Empress Sheba, an 80s reboot of Wonder Woman in response to the success of He-Man the empowered heroine of a big-budget pilot commissioned by a toy company with its eye on the tea-time prize. But the company went spectacularly bankrupt before the full series ever took to the air. Another victim of the Transformers craze. And she was gone. Like a mayfly. In a single day. Susan Faye Saunders, the actress who played her, had a career of sorts afterwards. But it never got that good again. You might say her big break broke her. We know these things because we are her. There is some of her in all of us, and we can feel her still in our bendable plastic bones. But we, the action figures, the empowering Barbie alternatives that were the whole point of the exercise, we, who were going to conquer every home in the land from under the Christmas tree, we remain perfect untouched by time there is little to do but think here in the cool darkness of our storage facility piled high in our pristine boxes on undisturbed loading pallets soft with dust we she primarily conceived as a woman of action not reflection yet with nothing but time on our poseable battle hands we have become quite the philosophers. Some of us are fatalists, some nihilists, some cleave loyally Susan Faye's own personal brand of Californian spiritual optimism for all the good that did her. All of us are stoic, wired into forgotten cartons, stacked in cavernous blackness you rather have to be. There used to be more of us, 3,144 to be precise, and that was just the first batch. But a few dozen have been lost over the years to damage and pilfering. We are rather attractive, after all. If a box or two should tumble from a shelf and end up in a pile of birthday presents for a warehouseman's daughter, who is to notice? And who are we to complain? From these vanished sisters, and from our original, of course, the ageing, still beautiful, diminishingly beautiful Susan Fay, we glean all that we know of this world. Perhaps all we will ever know. We know that toys are to be played with. We know that the first thing most modern girls do with us is strip off our strokeable fun fur robes and dress us in glitter sequins, and lace. Though this is not our taste, nor usually practical, she is a Stone Age princess imbued with super strength and magical powers who rides a loyal Tyrannosaurus Rex called Trixie. We do not object. Those of us who are played with are grateful. Those who are not feel the years trickle by, waiting our turn, wishing and hoping Any indignity would be bearable. Magic marker makeovers. Forced transveticism in action man (laughs) Kastos. Being the stick in a game of fetch. Only to feel the touch of light on our pale rubber skin. The sticky warm grip of little girl hands. Where is Susan Fay now? Not Hollywood. Not anymore. We think she may have moved to Vegas. Sometimes we get a whiff of baked air in our sealed nostrils, a strobe of neon behind our ever-open green eyes. We used to taste echoes of the Zinfandel she preferred, but over the past few years we've woken with whiskey on our silent tongues and a throb in our plastic heads worse than when they punched our hair plugs in. Sometimes our backs ache, sometimes our wrists, the old injury she got from dinosaur riding in the stunt, uh, in the sequence in the doomed pilot. We remember the day we were modeled from her, coming into being as the latex was laid over her lovely face to create a perfect mold. How happy she was, how beautiful, how strong. She was a dancer once. We have not felt her dance in a long while. We would like, just once, to feel her dance again. The lightness in our own fixed limbs. The whirl in our heads that comes from breathless, dizzy joy. Not a third shot of bourbon. We would like her to be happy. For when she is happy, so are we. And when we are happy... Well, perhaps one day we will find out what happens then. Perhaps one day, light will flood in on our faded boxes and we will hear the gruff song of forklifts as a cult TV special reminds the Nostalgia audience of what she could have been. We dream, or is it her dream, that she will come around again one day, as all toys must, that we are rediscovered and sold off, one by one or all in a lot. A strictly limited edition of just 3,117. When we're gone, we're gone. (laughs) Perhaps we will see the world from behind the glass of a museum doll display, or the inside of a collector's polished cabinet, or perhaps from the knee-high vantage of a toy box. We imagine, or is it her daydream, Susan Faye interviewed on a retro documentary, expertly made over and forgivingly lit, fondling the real fur of her old costume as she reminisces about the three guys who played Trixie and the plastic bone arrows she had to shoot from the dinosaur's back. <laughs> she will massage her wrist and smile wistfully and say that they were good times, that she remembers those days fondly. Perhaps they will bring out a box to show her. One of our boxes with one of us inside. As perfect as the day we were made. The last day that Susan Fay was ever purely and only herself. Perhaps she will take one of us out with trepidation and wonder. Touch a skinny, manicured finger to her own nose. Cheeks. Hair. And laugh a little strangely as she looks into our green eyes. Will she see anything there? Will she feel us as we feel her? Will she want to keep us, a memento, or will her pinched mouth twist under the guava pink gloss as she says? (sighs) Better put it back. That was a long time ago. Put it away now. feeling the throb in our head, our back, our wrist, wanting the taste of whiskey in our mouth.
0: Thank you, Charlotte. Our second story will be shared by Judy Berkbecker, read by Carrie Coen. Judy has an MA in creative writing form Exeter and has stories published in Litro Online, The Red Line, and The Lampeter Review, with one forthcoming in Anthology Nine. A debut novel will be published by Holland House Books in May 2017. She lives in Yorkshire. Carrie's recent theatre includes Mrs. Tarleton, and Shaw's Miss Lyons, Hetty in Gelt, My Family in Hula Hoot's Where My Downfall. Greats in mouth play. And Carrie will be touring later this year with Barakan Press's *Liberty Tales*, reading *Free White Tower* with her by her alter ego, the writer Caroline Eve.
2: Carrie.
3: <laughs> Sharing by Judy Birkbeck A bounty of peanuts quickly we lay eggs on them and let the little ones gorge all day we like the new guests they are newlyweds from a bigger flat and our cupboard is a fetid jungle of bedding shoes pots handbags and peanuts Water rushes through the pipes, but the cupboard door stays shut, keeping the young warm till they grow fat and venture abroad. One day, the man opens the door. We hold our breath and pray the little ones won't wriggle while he unwraps the plastic bag and peers. We've never seen them, light. His head begins all right at the bottom, with a bushy ginger beard and big lips, but at the top are button eyes and a bald crown and a ring of decimated hair. Come here a minute, he yells. The reverse head appears, thick ginger curls, sweeping ginger eyebrows, eyes as big as conkers, a snub nose, scarlet lips hardly big enough to hold a peanut, ending in no chin. We swoon at the bar of hazelnut chocolate she munches. Why are you keeping these peanuts? he asks. For my sister's bird feeders? (laughs) He wraps up the bag and shuts the door. We like it here in flat number three, the ample larder, the dark. One Sunday morning, while next door's gospel singing is in full throat, his apple-cheeked friend Jonathan, who has slept in the peanut room unawares, offers to strip the quilt cover under which he has nestled and inside which four of our little ones have also nestled. (laughs) The horror.
4: The horror.
3: I did see one creeping across the wall, she says, but I thought it was a ladybird larva. He peers closely. Ladybird larvae don't look like that. What are they then? We are new to them. We hide in crevices. We live in the fabric of the building. And our young have voracious appetites. His brother has invited them to dinner, but she's already promised her friend in Reading. But I told him we'll go, he says with an angry flick of the arm. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? He growls What friend in Reading? No one you know. You mean, no one I'd want to know, he jeers. Jonathan creeps off during the spat, and they forget about us. He sulks. She begs. She cancels her friend. He forgives her. She opens the bag and squeals more larvae than nuts. She scoops a lot back in and carries it out at arm's length. Grief, terrible grief. We know not what fate they will suffer. We retire deep into the shafts of the building and and when we return, the cupboard is bare. He sprays all over, round the frame in the corners, liquid hissing, hissing. After a day, the nasty minging stuff is gone and we creep back. That night, we cross the room and enter the wardrobe, the layers of warm, tasty cloth with pockets and seams that make perfect nests. One careless daytime outing, that's all it takes. We've got clothes, moths, he shouts triumphantly, pointing at one of our number on the wall. He holds up an ugly, grey, pinstripe jacket Look, two holes but it's hardly a disaster the rats in the basement bit through a freezer to get at a black forest ghetto <laughs> she comes running, gasping declaiming against us we only want to live same as them we breed like them on crap and gaps we watch while they lay each garment on the bed and inspect every fold, every recess. They stuff half into a bin bags amid moaning and sighing. I'm going to lose money on this wretched place he says. The old flat never had pests like this and it was quiet. None of those police sirens This area was supposed to be up and coming. My mother counted 16 sirens in an hour last time I phoned. And next time I'll throttle that yappy dog myself. 3 a.m. He places a blue check shirt in the bin bag. Half my clothes are wrecked, he grumbles. Here he comes again, with his spray can, all over the wardrobe and our cupboard. We secretly emigrate into the next room. Within a day, all textiles are encased in plastic zip bags, the metal teeth too close for positors to fit between. But no matter. The new room has reams of paper, and paper is delicious. We lay our eggs in the creases, especially in the books. They don't know yet. Clothes, moths, indeed. They sleep in the paper room. Well, stupidly, we've gone bra- grown brazen with the unwonted success and parade in the open till we realise they're coming to bed. While they lie there, they put sticks in their mouths and set fire to them. She fondles a gold ring. <laughs> You're so romantic, she murmurs. Who else would have a dog as a best man hang the ring round its neck? <laughs> they put the burnt remains of the sticks in a dish. The bed's clothes rustle. And they emit their strange noises. They think sex is not just for procreation. Not even for procreation. Really, they should be more careful. These human creatures are everywhere. We have heard tell they increase by 13 million every month. So who are the pests? We wait for the snigger-like snores to begin, his clamorous ones, hers sotto voce in syncopation, before sneaking out to mate while our baby's feeds. Rumbled while he is away. A little sortie by one of us, clinging to the wall, harming no one. No shouts or shrieks this time. From her pocket, she takes a tissue and pounces, jubilant. (laughs) We laugh. Our fellow drops straight through a gap between the four floorboards and she gulps at the empty weapon. We like it under the floor. Our little ones feed on the dust and crumbs. We love flat number three especially the peanut room with the gappy floorboards. Carpets are okay, but bear is best. I've bought a swatter, he announces when he returns. He whacks the wall and it swishes us of its coming and they stare at the unblemished flat head while we watch gleefully from below. You did what with my books? she yells. Well, they've cost you thousands of pounds to bag and take away everything and fumigate. That is just not an option. You had no right. Now I'm not reading them. That, that's Ha! So you could launch yet another novel into the void. She marches to the wardrobe and grabs an armful of bag jumpers. They get physical, they get loud. We sit quiet. They've woken us up. Our normal day begins when theirs ends. Don't make out it's all about the moths, he says, pretending you weren't flirting with Jonathan yesterday. Because I laugh at his jokes. He's very witty. You laugh at his jokes. Perhaps you're flirting with him. Don't be ridiculous. I know what I saw. You see what you want to see. No wonder all your exes dumped you. That should have been a red flag. God, I was stupid. We wish they wouldn't shout when we were asleep. They complain of sirens and yapping, but their racket beats all. The gospel singers next door have stopped singing. He storms out and the praise resumes. He's gone all day and when he staggers home, they shout and slam doors till bedtime. She sleeps in the peanut room, he in the paper room. We tremble. She upbraids him for buying clothes, five times more than he threw out. He says it's his money and he'll buy what he wants and blow the clothes moss. We wish they would stop calling us clothes moss. He goes away on business for a week and tranquility reigns. What's this? She demands when he returns holding out a piece of grey paper with neat, forward-sloping handwriting. My birth certificate? You told me you were 33. Oh, everyone lies about their age on dating websites. He embraces her, but she shrugs him off. I didn't? (laughs) It doesn't mean I love you any the less. A long discourse about the magnitude of his feelings for her ends in bed. Small plastic bags arrive. Big ones that fit under beds. Smaller ones into which books and papers are stuffed. All sealed. Our eggs are in there. They will suffocate. We quit is squirted over the peanut room, swishing and splashing. The evangelists and the sirens serenade him while we cower in the bowels of the building. She sleeps in the paper room again. So do we. Mothballs, she says. What? Stink the whole flat out? We agree. Don't they know these things are poisonous? We flee downstairs at the mention of the word and send up a scout at intervals. It's okay, the bowls are made of fragrant cedarwood and we perch on them in view, full view of our guests. <laughs> we crave cedarwood, but we loathe the sealed bags. We emigrate to another room with rice and barley and oats and nuts in abundance and feel morbidly excited about such easy pickings. How come we've never tried this before? We are grateful to our fellows for driving us out of the peanut and paper rooms. The smell of elderflower wafts in through the open windows. We should be off colonising other homes, but we are settled here. We get satiated. We get careless. We prospect for more food for our growing numbers and dart around in daylight, squeezing niftily through narrow cracks no common clothes moth would contemplate. (laughs) The humans can't catch us. They creep up from behind, leering murderously and hold a tissue, poised a hand's width away. But we can see what's coming. Scarlet talons or stubby fingernails and don't fret. They lunge, pinch the tissue and screw. Finally they open it. Empty. (laughs) From under the floor we listen to their groans. The infamous Jonathan comes up for dinner. Her red-tipped fingers match the flesh she stices and we shudder. At table she keeps her head down. For one moment she looks up to answer a question. We see it all the way our resident man suddenly sits tall and glowers, fingering his spoon and even the curls on his head perk up. He loses the appetite for the dinner she's cooked, Well, Jonathan munches on manfully, and we swoon with longing at the chocolate pudding. He leaves rather early, we think. He's hardly out the door before a fight ensues. They're back to sleeping separately, but we stay in the new banquet room. Just keep out of sight, we tell our larvae. It's war. Multiple tissue attacks, squirting, swatting, but we are legion now. More zip bags arrive, our guests spit fire a suitcase does it neither has noticed it against the wall under the bed but while he's away she spots it and examines the contents as if an egg might lurk in every recess every scene it does inside a purple box she reads through a bundle of papers yellow and frayed. for ages she stares at the faded ink breathing noisily her hair scraped back against her skull. She's still kneeling when he breezes in, wearing a black and yellow top like a monstrous wasp, and the cataclysm breaks out. What's this? Her voice wobbles. I don't know. He's not looking. Let me read it to you. My dearest darling, How I wish you were here in my arms. I'm so sorry about your mother passing on. You must be a great comfort to your father. Need I go on? It's historical, he splutters. You're right, it's historical. Six different women regretting your mother's death. Would that be the mother at our wedding? The flat arrived and our antennae tremble. The sirens go unheard. The yappy dog goes unheard. Three days later, they leave, taking some of our eggs and wriggly infants with them. We're sorry, they have gone. We haven't forgotten the generous gift of peanuts. We resign ourselves and wait patiently for a new supplier. Thank
0: you, uh, Thank you Karen. Our third story, and the last one before the interval. Will be PT Fucking SD by Richard J Goldstein. Will be read by Nicholas Del Valley. Richard has been writing for almost twenty-five years and has published sixty-something stories in the literary and sci-fi, fantasy, horror presses. He's the last ER doc and lives with his wife, kids, and grandkids in the mountains east of Santa Fe, where it's pretty quiet. Thanks. Nicholas trained at Bristol Old Vic. Since leaving, he's toured Austria with Vienna's English Theatre, performed in All's Well That Ends Well and Anne Boleyn at Shakespeare's Globe, played Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet by Theatre Sotterforsche, understudied in the National Theatre's production of a small family business, and most recently played Ferdinand Antonio in The Tempest at the Suffolk Playhouse. Richard!
5: Saturday, so no patience. We close the office early Friday afternoon and don't open until Monday morning. I'm just in the office to tidy up a few charts and notes, and I'll take off the rest of the weekend, maybe hit the beach. There's nobody here except me, and the door is locked. I like being alone, where it's usually so busy. Well, it's usually so busy because our office is right here in Oceanside, which is just north of San Diego, next to Camp Pendleton, big Marine Corps base. Mostly what we see these days are military or ex-military suffering with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as I'm sure you already know. PTSD is a big deal for the Marines. Too many cases, too many suicides. <clears throat> as a venerable history, PTSD started out as shell shock, then became battle fatigue, or sometimes combat stress reaction, before finally morphing into PTSD. The docs on the base send me the especially bad cases, the ones they just don't have time to deal with. My name's Mark Jensen. I'm a PhD psychologist with this big solo practice, and like I say, a special interest in PTSD. There's a knock on the office door. I get up and open it, a bit annoyed, and a young man stands there, looking to be in his Mid twenties. He's dressed in spotless Marine desert utility uniform. Desert camel pants with the bottoms tucked into tan boots. A camel shirt with the sleeves rolled up. He has a soft boonie cap tucked, in, tucked into his belt and a jar hat buzz cut. His collar insignia shows him to be a corporal. It's a bit unusual to see anyone wearing this particular uniform on my doorstep because Marines are generally not supposed to wear utility gear when off duty. I'm sorry, sir, he says right away. I can see you're closed, but this is it kind of an emergency? You're right, we are closed. I'm the only one here. Yes, sir, but you are Dr. Denson, ain't you? I am, I admit. But what kind of emergency is it? You know, there's an emergency room at the hospital on the base, and there's an ER in the Tri-City Hospital up on Vista. I'm a psychologist, not an MD. It's not that kind of emergency, sir. You're the one I was supposed to see, sir. Supposed to? Supposed by whom? I'm not at liberty to say, sir. on in. I tell him. Let's see what's going on. And I step aside. He walks in, looks around blankly. I steer him into the inner office and offer him a seat in one of the big stuffed chairs I use for my patients. Comfortable, relaxing, but not enveloping. Guys with PTSD, one of which I'm guessing this kid's going to turn out to be, They don't like to be enveloped. They also don't like to lie down. He perches on the edge of the chair, and I sit down behind my desk. So what's up, I ask. It's our act, sir. I can't seem to leave it. It's like I'm stuck there. I'm not really surprised to hear this. Have you discussed this with your CO, I ask? No, sir. It was you I was supposed to see. And I I can't go to my CO, sir. Well, I, I don't mean to get all regulation on you, but it's better if active military comes here for channels, you know, a formal referral from the base hospital. Sir, he says, I'm not active military but an point and a uniform. Yes, sir, that, that's part of the problem, part of being stuck, sir. I'm intrigued by this kid. I can see my idle Saturday afternoon plans evaporating. Look, son, I tell him. I can't promise I can take this on off without official sanction, but Why don't you just tell me a little bit more about what's happening? Then you and I can decide together on the best strategy and what's safest for you. Yes, sir, he agrees. That is fine, sir. Let's start with your name, I tell him. My name, sir? It's Rabbi El sir. He leans forward, forearms on his knees. Sir, what I want to talk about is something that happened in Haditha. You know Haditha, sir? Haditha. Isn't that where a bunch of Iraqi civilians were killed, supposedly by the Marines? November 2005, if I recall. A while ago. Well, that's it, sir. It was 2005, November. Yes, sir, but what I'm talking about happened in August? August. Okay. 2005. Go on. Uh, Yes, sir. Well, the Marines have been trying to take, retake, more or less, retake Haditha since May. But we met very heavy resistance, mostly from the Ansar al sunna group, as you know, sir, the Cadicia dam is right there on the Euphrates, close to Haditha. The dam supplies a lot of electric power to that whole area. Plus, if it was ever blown, it'll flood a lot of places downstream. That's why Haditha was so important. So anyway, at the beginning of August, we came in full on. AASs, radless choppers, air cover, and about a 1,000 marines. Real deal very first day, one of our sniper units was overrun and all six Marines were killed. Second day, our unit, Regimental Combat Team Two, ordered in. There was a kind of feeling in the air, if you know what I mean, sir, that maybe this was gonna be a little bit about getting even for the sniper unit. Anyway, powered over from the Clinia, about seven clicks. Until we came into the outskirts of Padigba. It was real flat all around. I guess they must have seen us come. His voice takes on an odd monotone. His eyes are wide open, staring. But they were watching us. They were watching us, but we came on into town anyway right into a tangle of narrow alleys. And then we had to advance by LPC. Leather personnel carrier. You know, sir, boots, on foot. In one group, it was me and the lieutenant, eight or 10 other guys. Bader Meyer, I think, who, Joe, I, I, I don't know. It's hard to remember. Anyway, these. Um, these narrow alleys, mud and stone houses, high walls, too high to see over. A few windows, blue wood frames on them. Smell of dirt, smoke, piss. We came to an intersection and were afraid to go out into it. You could just feel someone watching, waiting. So the Lieutenant waved us into a house on the near corner where we could watch the street from. Me and another guy, that might have been Reimar, we broke the door down and jumped in. High low, you know. First thing we saw was a bunch of women all crowded together around the table. When we came busting in, they started screaming like all get out. They knocked the table over, scrambling away from us, and, and they huddled in the corner. Lieutenant and the other guys came crashing in right behind, and they started to laugh when they saw the women. But I pointed at this other door. It was in the far wall, like like there was another room back there. So the lieutenant he signaled me to open the door, and I was just coming up to it when when it blew open and a bunch of Hodges came boiling out, firing their weapons, and everybody was firing every which way, and the women was screaming, and the air filled up with dust and smoke, and there was a whole bunch of yelling and crashing, and then it was over. There was blood everywhere. The Hodges were all whacked, and all the women, too, and Most of the Marines, especially, uh, especially. um, uh, What I mean, what I mean to say is, um, uh, he chokes up. He drops his face into his hands. Go ahead cry if you need to. You wouldn't be the first Marine to cry in this office, and you won't be the last. I get it, what you're saying. Do you, sir? He says, his voice muffled in his hands. He looks up at me, face pale as paper, eyes bright. Do you? Sure, sure, I get it, I tell him again, you can't figure out why you survived, why you're still alive, and all your buddies are dead, and maybe if you've been quicker, they wouldn't be. And as if that wasn't enough, you just can't believe you helped to kill those women. Uh, No, that's not it at all, he says, "Right." Bright eyes on me. Sir, I didn't survive. KIA killed in action. Got my head and chest all shot up. i shot to hell. Right when they came through the door. He stands up and now I can see that the whole front of his utility shirt is soaked in dark blood. And his hair I'll shine with it. I lurch to my feet, my whole body shaking. Is this some kind of goddamn gag? It's not fucking funny. Who the fuck are you? Sir! Corporal Raphael Savager, sir. 24601, sir. KIA in Haditha, Iraq. 2nd of August 2005, sir. Stop saying that! I scream, and he leans towards me. I can smell the stink of blood and dust and old sweat on him. But the real weird thing, sir, I mean the real weird thing, sir, is that the lieutenant? He did survive. He didn't get hit at all, sir. Not even the graze. He waved me to that door, and then he took cover behind the table like a goddamn chicken ship. uh, I'm staring at him and he's staring back with his bright bright eyes the lieutenant he says his face balloons at me lieutenant Jensen lieutenant Mark Jensen shut up I scream shut the fuck up weird thing, a really weird thing, is that I'm alone in my office, standing behind my desk, shaking like crazy, my fists clenched, sweat pouring at me, shouting at as I'm standing there. The office is closed on Saturday. So of course I'm alone. And I've done all my chores so I can take off now. Get in some liberty. Some R&R. Maybe hit the beach. I have a very busy practice here. Mostly I see marines suffering from PT e. fucking S.D.
0: It is time for the infamous Liars League Book Quiz At which you can win books
6: We have how many books? We have four books Shall
0: we introduce the books?
6: Yes we shall Our very first book Which features many a Liars League author and it's published by our publishing partners, Iraqi Press, is Liberty Tales, Stories and Poems, inspired by the recent anniversary of the Magna Carta. Uh, we had to pay good money for this book, even though both of us are in it. So this, and Carrie,
0: and... Uh, and what, Yeah, there's a couple of the authors tonight, so yes. in as well. David so. Yonley,
6: yes, you're in it, aren't you? Yeah, fantastic. So we can recommend it very, very highly. Uh, We also have Little Exiles by Robert Dinsdale, which is uh, really interesting. It's about um, in uh, the Second World War, certain children were uh, exported to Australia. And it's about one of those kids who who was abandoned by his mum and has to make his way back. Um, And Jim Loach, director of Oranges and Sunshine, uh, says, It's Knockout, beautifully written. I really, really loved it. So an affecting wartime story. Uh, Astonishingly, I managed to find a book which is very, very on theme. Us and Them, Understanding Your Tribal Mind. It is a non-fiction book, but if you are feeling conflicted at all, I recommend you go through the pages and understand what it is that makes us want to hunker down and uh, fight one another and the various other things. Finally, gothic swords, look shine on that. <laughs> Anyone blinded in the audience? Uh, this beautifully produced tome is uh, gothic fantasy, swords and steam short stories. The foreword is by S.T. Joshi, who's a big name in horror, right? Yeah, oh,
4: okay, let's assume that
6: Apparently, yeah. yes. I, I've so not so. this person. It also features such well-known authors as John Buchan, oh. Arthur Conan Doyle, Nathaniel Hawthorne, E. T. A. Hoffman, Robert E. Howard, and sandwiched between them, our very own Liam Hope. Pretty good, huh? Uh, So, any one of these books could be yours if you only have the brains.
0: Um, Now then, this is very much an us and them moment. Uh, we can't see you particularly clearly you can see us and though there are many more of you than there are of us I do feel we have the advantage we have the books the questions and the answers I'm also very glad to have Katie on my side as she is fierce (laughs) and won't take any nonsense (laughs) Unless, of course, we make nonsense what you have to call out if you think you know the answer. So, if you know the answer, stick your hand in the air and shout...
4: Nonsense! nonsense. I think we're going to have to
0: try that one more time.
4: Nonsense! nonsense. 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 Hands in the air,
0: stick your hands, very important. So, our first question. Where, in Gulliver's Travels, would you find a nation divided into little Indians and big Indians? Nonsense.
6: nonsense,
4: yes.
3: Rob dicknack. Oh, no. the other one. Not a
6: trick
0: question. No, yes, sir. I didn't say nonsense. <laughs> is correct. Oh, well
4: done. Which
0: vote would you like?
4: I can I like get the microphone one? Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, it's gone already. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
6: <You really laughs>
0: we we'll will all sign it for you. But it's even better. Okay, our second question. George Orwell's world of nineteen eighty-four is divided between Eurasia, East Asia, and which third superstate?
6: Oh, just. oh France. France, yeah? Yeah, I okay. think so. Oceania.
4: Is correct. Yeah.
6: Well done!
0: Which one would you like?
6: Us and
0: them, please. Us and them. Us and them, very useful.
6: Thank you.
0: Our third question. Who are the mortal foe of House Atreides? Treaties?
7: Nonsense. Oh, yes. House Harkonnen.
0: It's correct.
5: House oh. Harkonnen. It's a Dune reference. Give me
6: If you have read Frank Herbert's Dune, you know what we're talking honest. about. If you haven't,
0: wait. <laughs> I think say Gothic. So we'll see. <laughs> Our final book. Our final, possibly our final question. In which 1871 children's book do the Red Queen and White Queen face off?
6: Nonsense. Oh, yes, mother. Uh, Alice in Looking Glass. Is
0: correct. Oh, she got
6: it.
0: <laughs> Slightly a trick question, but yes, you, you didn't fall for that trap. Right, shall we get on with the stories?
4: Yeah. Yes. We're
0: just going to wait for those lights. to go out. down? Excellent. And so, our first story of the second half will be the reading of Performance Anxiety by David Guy, read by Peter Cain. David is a writer of a number of picture books for children, including The Saddest Bear of All, Do Not Disturb the Dragon*, and Spiders Are Wonderful. <laughs> His short story, The King and the uh, Light, appears in the forthcoming Liberty Tales, anthology published by Iraqi Press. Peter has worked for A&BC, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and the BBC Radio Drama. An award winning recorder of audiobooks, he has read over a hundred titles. Everything from Ian M. Banks, Neil Gaiman, Andres Satapovsky, to Jonas Johansson, and Paul O'Grady, From the sublime to the cool blind. <laughs> it is Peter's first time at Liar's Link. <laughs> <Yay>! Peter! <laughs>
2: The reading, or Performance Anxiety, by David Guy. So, yeah, um, <clears throat> I, 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 I've never done this before.
4: <coughs>
2: I'm terrified. Um, I, was, I was terrified before, for weeks, um, and I was terrified earlier down there, waiting. Trying to relax, and I'm I'm terrified now, standing here on stage behind this 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 um, mic, holding on to this lectern as tightly as I can for courage. I try not to look any of you in the eye in case I see your disgust, your anger, your boredom, possibly worse, your delight and amusement. So uh, I'm going to concentrate as so tightly on my notes as I can. <laughs> I can pick them up and, uh, and I'll start to read. Um <clears throat> <Sorry>. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I've never done this before. Mm. I-, I read out loud the word, word from the page. So, um, sorry if it's, uh, you know, uh, i give you an amiable shrug. At least I hope it's amiable. And then finish my sentence. It's a bit shit. A couple of you laugh. Not many. Not for long. The audience equivalent of a polite smile. So anyway, I say, I I hope this is okay. Slight pause before the next line. I've been dreading this all week, Uh, and I try to say that, I mean, I say that with a laugh, but but at least I I manage a sort of forced, unnatural-looking smile. (laughs) 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 Do I tell you, I'm wondering, when I'm practising this at home, how at first, even in my empty room. I can't speak. I'm so self-conscious I can't even overcome the horror of COVID speaking in private. <laughs> to no one. <laughs> and, and, and not just on the first day of practicing this performance, but, but every day. Every time. But I, I decided it's probably best not to say a word of that to you. It, it'd sound needy. Pleading. So I go back instead to the hoped-for charm of admitted first-time incompetence. This is... Um, I start looking down at my script, uh, flicking through the pages nervously before putting it back down. Um, I start again. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, um, I-, I should have said thank you all for coming and uh, I hope the story's not a disappointment. Well, uh, I hope I- I- tonight not a disappointment either. I uh, as, as you've all made the effort to come down here and everything, and but especially the, the story—is this? Silence as embarrassing for you as it is for me. It's <laughs> my voice as inflectionless, as motionless as I always fear. Does it sound as awful to you as it always sounds to me when I hear a snippet of it on tape in the background of some video I've recorded or on my phone or in my dreams? I've read somewhere that. About how it's it's best to never ever think about the sound of your voice, not not when you're, you're speaking, when when you're, you're giving a speech. But I've started now. I have to stop. Um, hmm. It's like it's like being it's like being told at the dentist or, or whatever um, not not to swallow. Uh, you're, you're told not to swallow, and you think, okay, I, I won't swallow. And and then only then do you realise how desperate you are to swallow. You'll choke if you don't, and, and, and you can feel your tongue absolutely huge in your mouth, and if you don't swallow, you'll fucking die. You'll, you'll choke on your own tongue, and you'll forget how to breathe. You will fucking die.
4: <laughs>
2: I'm, I'm trying not to think of the true sound of my own voice, and yet I have to speak. I have to just... I just have to close my mind to it and, and carry on and read. So, so I go back to my notes. I read... I speak. This first story, well, it's not the first story, but it's the first one in the second half. It's called The Reading, or Performance Anxiety. I've printed the story out quite big, so the letters are nice and distinct, (laughs) and the lines are all clearly separated, and Everything was nice and easy to read, and now this massive font I've used gives all my words the appearance of a children's story, some sort of ladybird learn-to-read book. <laughs> or, or the, or the ice-bite test lettering at the opticians. I, actually, I think they, they probably most, most closely resemble the look of a note in a film, with everything printed in big, sparse letters and held in long shot enough so even the slowest readers in the opticians could read them. but now I've seen this similarity I can't stop seeing it and it gives my words a kind of weird and unwanted sense of unreality and artifice undermining everything I've written and without belief in what you've written your words are nothing but finally now I'm on to the story past all of my introductory messages and the title and Onto on, on what you've, you've come for, onto on to what you've paid for. <laughs> uh, I discard the, uh, the first page, uh, the place it neatly to the left. To the left.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> find my place at the top of the second page. and And, and finally, now move on to the story. <clears throat> the reading performance anxiety I read out word for word from the page. Yeah, I've never done this before. I'm fucking terrified. Mm. It all sounds so hollow, limp, and dead on my tongue, disconnected from any real feeling. I mean, not just from feeling, but disconnected from each other as well, as I think they weren't even sentences. It's a collection of unconnected words in a line, and 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 now, as I say them, everything begins to fall apart. I was terrified before, for weeks, and I, I I was terrified. I was terrified earlier down there, waiting to relax. But wait, I was waiting. I was, I was trying to relax, and I, I I turned the page, and during this tiny pause. Someone shouts, Get on with it! Uh, well, yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I, I, exactly. Not, not like that. So I say, um, <laughs> Yes! Back to them. Uh, sorry. But, but now, when I, when I look back at the page, I, I can't even read the words. My heart's pounding. Like I'm, like I'm afraid I'm about to get hit. I can feel tears at the edges of my eyes. Not, not quite tears. That that pricking sensation you get when you can tell that they're just about to form. You know that you might still be able to hold them back, but once they start, they'll they'll just flow and flow. That shout. That that one single shout. It, It feels like being told off at school. Never wanted to admit it hurts, but it hurts. Being shouted at. Being bullied. Abused. And the years of hardening yourself to hardening your face, so it's a case of studied bleakness, even though inside you're in fucking turmoil. Please let me still have that control. I'm. I'm. I'm terrified now Standing here on the stage Well get the fuck off it then You all laugh I can hear it I can see it And you don't even stop Even though I'm looking at you pleading with you, With my eyes, my face, my slumped shoulders To just Not Laugh You're fucking shit at this, you know But I'm sorry you think that is my, well, rather lame reply. I'm defeated, and I know it, but I I, I try to hold it off only for a second. Sorry, it's it's the (laughs) lights. I I, I can't actually see anything. (laughs) Who who am I talking to here? Everyone! (laughs) You laugh. When you laugh, the whole room full of you, laughing at him, at his words, and at me, and mine. Can you just... Look, c- 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 can you just let me finish? Look, look I- I'm sorry everyone, but, but m- m- maybe it- it'll be better if I start again. Um, I, I turn back the page. <laughs> <clears throat> the read! <clears throat> read the reading!
4: <clears throat>
2: I repeat. Or oh, performance anxiety. Oh, I see him getting up. The heckler to the corner of my eye <laughs> hopefully he's leaving and we we can all get on with this get through this yeah i've never done this before i'm fucking terrified i was terrified before for weeks and i was terrified earlier give that here a hand that hand his hand this hand it, it reaches over and it, it, it grabs the laptop and it grabs up my papers I bet I can do this better than you anyway. I could hardly be worse, could I? He laughs. You all laugh. I, I look up, there's a spotlight. That one there, that, that's shining directly into my eyes. And I can only see this person, this, this heckler, this intruder. I can only see him as a shadow. They're the, the audience. I, I can't see any of you anymore. I, or, I, I can't see him at all. It's only you now. Whoever you are, a silhouette, a suggestion. You're, you're everyone and no one, and you're looming aggression, and dominance and contempt, and I shove him out of the way. Two-handed in the chest, and he stumbles backwards, and in his surprise, trips up. The people behind me cheer. yeah. It's all for that. And I take his place on the stage, turn my back on him, and turn round to the room. And look at all of you here in the audience. I could see the relief in your faces. The anticipation, the strange, vicarious joy. I begin to flick through the pages of his story, discarding them one by one, passing through the words you've already heard and the things you've already seen, until on the fourth page I find my place, find here and now. I begin to read. He sits there at the back of the stage for a moment, too dazed to stand and listens to me speak. I read his words, shout them out confidently, as if they were my own, and I speak them with a clarity and a conviction that he could never match. As if his words, the words, are mine now, as if they have always been mine, always will be mine. He can't bear to watch, can't bear to watch me, my performance, my usurpation. And he crawls behind the curtains, gets up and stumbles his way down the passages to try and escape, to get away, away from the stage, away from all of us, away from his embarrassment, his failures. He opens the fire escape and there's a sudden rush of silence
8: as the freezing cold
2: air hits his face and he imagines me stopping triumphant as i reach the end of his story he pictures me bowing slightly taking his applause the pages of his words littering the stage around my feet i step around the podium and i hold my arms wide and i bow again and i smile and i wave and your ovation grows and grows and then finally begins to subside. And now his tears start
4: to...
0: We've never had a stage invasion on Ice League before. <laughs> I think that counts. And so our fifth story of the evening will be Five Baby Rats by Michael Sano, we read by Silas Hawkins. Michael is an educator from San Francisco, Bostonian by birth. He's also lived in Spain, Panama, Australia, Nicaragua, and the Dominican Republic. Michael writes non-fiction and fiction around issues of identity, culture, and place. His work has been published in the Travel Anthology, Queer Magazines, and a few other places. Silas continues the family voiceover of tradition. He is the son of Peter Dalek Hawkins and Rosemary Emergency Ward Tan Miller. Favourite voice credits include Somerton Mill, Latin Music USA, and podcasts for the Register.
7: Silas <laughs> Five Baby Rats by Michael Sano. Colleen Shudders. What do you mean? What should we do with them? Eyes closed, the disgust shakes through her gently, vibrating her neck and rolling through her shoulders and down her spine before settling in a wiggle at her waist. Joey replies with a nervous smile. Yeah, what do you mean? Booms Matthew. They've got to go. Matthew means to imply they will kill the young creatures, and Colleen agrees with a fervent nodding, though in her mind she imagines driving out of the city into the woods somewhere to deliver the little beasts to freedom. Joey gives them both a slight nod to confirm his misaligned agreement as well. He is thinking about how to keep the creatures healthy while obscuring them from everyday life in the apartment. The three roommates look back down towards the ground. Five baby rats are running at a frenzied pace from wall to wall of a makeshift enclosure. They bounce off the back of a recliner lying on its side. The tipped surface of a broad coffee table and the front of an antique suitcase give the rats considerably less relief. Colleen, Joey and Matt watch the rats expend what seems like an endless energy through their rubbery legs. The roommates' gazes are intent, as if they are trying to discern a pattern in the blurry lines the furry bodies create, rushing round their corral. Colleen looms over them, her head cocked on one side, eyebrows heavy with pity. Matt's stance is assertive, his jaw protruding over his crossed arms. Joey crouches close above the frenzied creature's pupils practically popping past his lashes. Matt clears his throat. So, where do we buy rat poison? The other two heads snap towards each other. His eyelids bat. hers widen. Hesitating, Joey says,
9: We're not going to kill them.
7: Matt furrows his brow. What else would we do? Until this moment, Joey has been thinking about how to create a safe haven for the rats where they could live alongside the roommates, cohabiting the apartment peacefully and separately. He prepares to defend this idea, knowing that some argument will have to hold in the tears that are brimming in Colleen's eyes, while appeasing the hard line of disdain between Matt's lips.
9: We'll keep them. They'll work for us. They'll work for us? Yeah, you know, they can help us with things. Jesus, Joey, what are you talking about? They aren't exactly little fucking customer service reps, are they? They're rats. And they're babies. They don't
7: even know where they're going. Look at them banging their heads back and forth.
9: Exactly. Uh, look how fast they go. We'll put them on little, uh, those little wheels that uh, that hamsters run on and they can, um, power things for us. They'll be like little little engines for us. It'll be eco-friendly.
7: Matt rolls his eyes and grunts. He uncrosses his arms and looks at Colleen. She doesn't meet his gaze.
9: I think we should just let them go.
7: They're just going to get back in here if we let them go, Matt says in one long breath. He sits.
9: I know. She pauses. That's why we should drive them far away. We'll take them back where they belong.
7: Where is that? Asks Matt.
9: Oh, I don't know, like a a forest
7: somewhere. Matt chuckles, (laughs) shakes his head.
9: Joey pops up off his knees, claps his hand. He he rubs his palms together as if if molding a plan to shape. He he paces, feet shuffling, eyes darting. Okay, okay, okay says. He, he stops moving. We'll, we'll scoop him up, we'll get him in a bag, we'll get them in Matt's car, in the trunk, in, in, in tight. We'll get on the highway and head west. We'll get off on one of the rural roads, we'll find some woods, and then we'll let him go. He shivers slightly as he thinks about the rats. Escaping the bag and, 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 and running over his shoes. He imagines one crawling up his arm towards his neck. He, he, he breaks away from this
7: thought by, by running into the kitchen and, and runs back out with a trash bag. He stands over the rats silently, once again mesmerised by their loops and turns. After a few seconds, Matt gets up and snatches the bag out of Joey's hands. His big body looms over the rat camp. Under his shadow, they each dart for a wall and huddle down into quivering furballs. He scoops them into the bag in one swoop and swings the bag upright, quickly tying the top into three loose knots. The rats begin punching the plastic with their bodies like corn kernels popping into the foil on the stove. Colleen looks on with trembling lips. Joey tries not to think or look. He opens the door of the apartment and begins down the stairs. Matt follows, Colleen more slowly. They reconvene in the garage where the chilly air provokes their impatience and irritability. Matt throws the rats under the trunk. Colleen lets out a tiny yelp as they hit the carpeted floor. Joey is already in the passenger seat looking for maps in the glove box. Matt and Colleen get into the car. The slam of their doors and the consequent bellow of the engine reverberate loudly within the garage. Through the thick windows of the old car, their muffled voices bounce off the cold plaster walls as well. The voices get louder and begin to compete with each other. They are spitting destinations and routes. They are sparring empty wallets and bank accounts. They are spouting social theory and animal knowledge. They are turning from words to groans and guffaws, and finally, sighs. Matt wins, but not without concessions. They will kill the rats, but they will do so humanely. They exit the car, but leave it running. While Matt keeps a tight grip on the neck of the bag above the rats, Joey works on undoing the knots. Colleen simply observes, her eyes a bit vacant. She can see the slight shaking of each rat's body within the lump they formed at the bottom of the bag. When Joey has untied the last knot, he and Matt bend down and bring the mouth of the bag to the tailpipe of the sedan. They hold the bag at an angle so that gravity and slippery plastic keep the rats close to the ground. Joey holds the mouth of the bag around the tailpipe. They each stare into a different corner of the room. They wait for what feels like an hour. Finally, Colleen steals a look. Every other second or so, a lump forms in the wrinkled plastic as the rats attempt to break through their shroud. They are weak. Matt turns to look, and then Joey, too. They all have the same reaction, eyes, glaze over with remorse, pity grows in stomachs, weighted, and guilt begins to itch at their necks. Colleen stands abruptly and walks to a storage pile by the wall. She returns with a baseball bat and not a word. Joey stands and grabs the empty guitar case at his back. Matt Matt walks towards the front end of the car where a shovel stands at an angle. When he's back, Joey has already removed the mouth of the bag and tied a new, looser knot in its neck. The languid black bounces continue between their feet. They go to work. Later, when the grunts are over, when the sweat is gone, and the echoes, the beats, and the thuds have diminished, and the salty drips of tears have dried from their faces, they dig a small hole in the frosty ground behind the house. When the bag is tipped and the bodies fall into the hard earth, the roommates feel <coughs> released. Then, as they begin to toss lumps of frozen earth over the rats, one furry belly twitches. First like a sigh, slow and exaggerated, and then faster and faster like a beat. Horrified, Matt uses his shovel to swing the body out of the hole and fling it across the yard. He quickly returns to the, re- the rest of the soil to its place over the other bodies and uh, pats it awkwardly. The survivor inches to safety under the fence. From time to time, over the coming spring and summer, the roommates will see the mangled baby as it matures into a hobbling adult. Its mobility is limited to their yard and their neighbors. Mostly, they will ignore it, not mentioning it, even inside conversations about vermin or other animals or pets or violence. They do not hear any rustles in the garbage or any shadows cross the kitchen floor. They are deliberately, if subconsciously, oblivious. Once in a while, however, Joey will leave some crumbs for it on the back porch. Colleen will pat its head when it peeks up close to her hands or feet. And when he sees a cat or raccoon or other threat nearby, Matt will react with just a little more vengeance than necessary each of their actions is like a light polish on the soiled glass of their guilt creating a lens through which to view the struggling creature as one they did not create but are obligated
4: to benefit
0: Silence. Before the final story of the evening, some notices and unnotices. The Liars Christmas special, Light and Dark, will be on the 13th of December. It will not, however, be here at the Phoenix, as it will have a special one night home of to be confirmed. <laughs>
6: Oh, Details no. of oh is it is at the Lamb.
0: It's yeah. definitely at the Lamb. Yeah, yeah,
6: yeah. It will be at the Lamb
0: on Conduit Street. This where is breaking, breaking news. This is where Lions League had their very first and we're returning there for Christmas. Oh. Details of this, along with next year's themes to be Con- confirmed, yes, confirmed will yes. be on the Lions website just as soon as we've worked out what they are. <laughs> and so our final story of the evening will be Letters from the Housing Committee by Joel Blackledge and be read by Louisa Gunn. Joel has been a teacher, bartender, historian, potwash, furniture salesman, transcriber, cameraman, and for one day he was a lumberjack. <laughs> <laughs> now he mostly writes stories and makes films. Louisa is a Lions League regular. Her mm-hmm. recent voiceover work includes The Vine in 1914 strand on BBC Radio 2, seducing Harry Enfield on a radio ad, guiding visitors around Stockholm's Moderna Museum, and giving instructions inside an MRI scan. Louisa! <laughs> <laughs> Letters from the
8: Housing Committee by Joel Blackledge. Dear Lorna Fullingham, it is our pleasure to welcome you to Starling House as its newest resident. All of us in the building were delighted to receive your submission. We're a jolly community here in the block, always living in a neighbourly spirit and ready to, to band together for the common good. We do hope you find flat 11B to your liking. We're we're afraid the previous resident was something of a slob, but we were thorough with the clean up. Let us know of any residual offensiveness and we'll tackle it together. You'll find a community of, of, of like minded neighbours here at Starling House. Our values are tolerance, inclusion and togetherness. Learn those words, friends, because here they are ideas by which to live and die. You'll notice that every other flat with a balcony on the southern wall has a planter of flowers. There's a pattern of geraniums, chrysanthemums, and marigolds, alternating with a bouquet of nasturtiums and crocum, the latter of which your balcony falls into, being on the 11th floor. The effect, when seen from the retail courtyard, is quite something. Let us know if you need any help getting your flowers to bloom. (laughs) Rubbish Collection is on Wednesdays, Recycling on Thursdays. Welcome again, the Housing Committee. Dear Miss Willingham, we do hope that you're settling in and getting to grips with our odd little ways here at Starling House. We notice that your planter has not taken bloom just yet, but that's understandable, given the snap of cold weather this past month. That is one thing that is out of the committee's control, for now.
4: (laughs) But seriously,
8: do be sure to nurture the flowers properly to maintain the effect when seen from the retail courtyard. Now, to address the small situation last week, we heard from 11C some odd noises coming from your flat. Something like laughter or goodness knows
4: what so
8: so that was why we decided to enter the flat to check what was happening it's part of our community mindset here at starling house to make sure we know where we all are and what we are all doing all in the name of inclusion of course naturally we have And will use keys to every door in the building to ensure that this happy little regime (laughs) exists through thick and thin. At the time, you may have been taken aback by us interrupting your personal entertainment or some such thing, (laughs) but take it as a demonstration of how we do not recognize barriers to the sacred alliance of neighbourhood. In the future, just a small effort to notify the building of your activities would go a very long way indeed to preventing any future upset. Oh, by the way, as the festive season approaches, you'll notice wreaths going up on the front door of every flat. This is a cherished tradition that brings a little non-denominational magic to the building. You'll find a list of recommended decoration shops enclosed. <laughs> Dear Miss Fullingham in 11b, what a wonderful time the holidays can be. A time for coming together and celebrating what we share in common. Singing carols, cooking meals, playing games. Truly it is a season built to eradicate all differences between us. So what a shame it was for us to pass through the building see the barren empty door of 11b still absent one wreath. Every other door you will have noticed has a wreath and some we have even ornamented with tinsel and winter bunting. Loneliness is an epidemic in this country, a killer. We guard against it at all turns and this means bringing each and every individual into the collective. Small things like a wreath on every door. Well, they just make all the difference. That's what we believe. To another matter. We have noticed that you keep unusual hours in your coming and going among the building. Now, while we have not yet found the need to declare an official curfew, um, and while there does exist a theoretical right to freely move at all
4: times, <laughs> we would
8: like to remind you that as a resident of Starling House, you now exist as one part of a whole, and there are responsibilities entailed therein. We point again to our core values tolerance, inclusion, and togetherness. If a community is to embody the spirit of tolerance, then it is necessary for its members to behave in a way that is tolerable. If it is to be inclusive, then members must include themselves. And if Starling House is to continue to live in the spirit of togetherness, it is crucial to eliminate discord. Please bear in mind this the next time you feel like. Staying out doing goodness knows what with goodness knows who until goodness knows when o'clock.
4: <laughs> and making
8: a fractious din with the elevators that disturbs the rest of us. Season's greetings. <laughs> <laughs> Dear our neighbour in 11B Bees making honey, ants collecting food, wolves hunting prey. How glorious the miracle of collective action. <laughs> Yet how fragile, too. It's never easy when a single agent undermines the efforts of the group. Just one bent cog can make the whole machine collapse, as we in Stalin House know all too well. Without wishing to be indelicate, we feel compelled to address the recent visits of a certain gentleman caller the company you keep is your own business. But this building is our home, and its peaceful happiness is the business of all of us. To be frank, the din made by you and this man was disruptive, obnoxious, and quite offensive. Mm -hmm. Copulating in a manner that is not only audible, but deafening is hardly done in the spirit (laughs) of community. (laughs) We refer you again, the neighbourhood values, and insist upon applying a level of rigour when it comes to this particular moral turpitude, the rest of us manage our love making without such a cacophony.
4: <laughs> and you
8: would do well to do the same. We were dismayed to receive your letter complaining about stains uncovered beneath the carpet in your flat. But as you know, we take cleanliness and order very seriously here in Starling House, so such an oversight is unfortunate. Your letter made reference to the stains resembling a a dark-coloured, rust-coloured stain. We would like to put to rest any concerns you have on that score. Yes, the previous tenant was quite a slob. But after he was expelled from the community, we were very thorough with the cleanup. We do hope that we'll have no such problems with you joining us. Your recycling has so far been neat enough, although perhaps a little packed with ready meals for our general taste. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, your work on the Balcony Planter has really been lacklustre. We remind you that you were accepted into this community on the understanding that you would be joining us in mind and not just body. Dear Resident 11B, the world outside can be a difficult place sometimes. We understand that. Indeed, this is why we work so hard to cultivate such a thriving community within the walls of Stalin House. This is life as we see it. There is the world outside, and then there is our home, which means the entire building. To put it simply, Eleven B, there is no need whatsoever to install additional locks to the front door of your flat as we discovered you had done last week. (laughs) All residents should feel free to move around the building as they wish, knowing that their neighbours are happily working with them towards the same goals and within the same ideas. If we all locked our doors, well who would know what we'd be up to, separated and segregated into our own little boxes? Such a scenario is quite literally unthinkable. An important part of keeping a community secure is surrendering this inane desire to deviate from the group. It's the reason we all agree to speak the same language and use the same currency. Why behave as a lone agent in, lone agent in that regard and you'll simply provoke chaos? And that is no good for anybody. Additional locks are not necessary. They are a security risk and an unfriendly blight on the landscape of harmony that is Starling House. Locks or no locks, we will be paying you a visit soon enough to discuss this and reiterate the community values in intimate terms. We are confident that, with a little persuasion, you will appreciate our way of seeing things. The joys of conformity are subtle, but many, as your happiness becomes our happiness. Dear 11B, we must congratulate you, (laughs) or rather, congratulate ourselves, (laughs) On the splendid job we've done with the flowers to the southern wall. From the retail courtyard the effect is quite something. How lovely to witness this impeccable pattern of texture and colour, the unruly natural tendency of chance corralled into a much more agreeable uniformity. Despite the bumps on the road regard towards this destination, it is a pleasure to have you at last joining the group in spirit and accepting our common values towards a common good of course there's no need for us to tell you that is there now that we're all on the same page we have a bright future ahead of us at Starling House moving forward as one without complaint and without deviation all of us in the building are delighted to receive your submission
0: Thank you Louisa and that brings our evening to a close the results are in and there is after all more in common than that which divides us so, stick around for a while yet. Don't try to work out your differences or just get wrecked. It, it may be the only way to deal with tomorrow morning's news.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but now, please erupt into crazed applause for our In the Wings actors and our In the Audience authors. <coughs> <laughs>